It's 3 a.m. and your phone rings. It's the call that there is a consult in the emergency room that requires your expertise. You get a quick one-liner from the senior resident. 56-year-old female with altered level of consciousness, muscle weakness, and what appears to be muscle spasms. Labs were ordered by the emergency physician. Can you guess what abnormality we will find? If hypocalcemia is at the top of your differential diagnosis, you would be correct. Calcium is an amazing element. It is responsible for numerous bodily functions across different organ systems. It allows for nerve excitability, the maintenance of bone health, cardiac function, hemostasis, muscle strength, and contractility. As for the most electrolytes, calcium works within the Goldilocks principle. Too much or too little can tend to cause issues, so you want to find the range that is just right. Without tight control on calcium levels in the blood, people are at risk of life-threatening complications. Recognition of the subtle signs and symptoms of hypocalcemia is an important skill that can save lives. Today, our patient has hypocalcemia, and you are the doctor. Welcome to the Internet Work, a podcast written by medical residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is titled, Tetany Trouble, the Approach to Hypocalcemia. There is approximately 1 to 2 kilograms of calcium in the body, 99% found in the bones and the rest in the extracellular space. Free ionized calcium in the extracellular fluid is physiologically active and plays a role in neuromuscular function and signal transduction. There are three hormones that dictate calcium regulation. Parathyroid hormone, PTH, calcitrol, and calcitonin. When calcium levels in the blood are low, PTH is secreted from the parathyroid glands to perform three main tasks. One, activate osteoclasts to promote the release of calcium from bone. Two, increase reabsorption of calcium in the kidneys. And three, promotes the conversion of 25-OH vitamin D to the activated form, calcitrol, which in turn promotes the absorption of calcium from the gut. When calcium levels rise above normal, PTH is suppressed, and the hormone calcitonin is released from the parafollicular C cells in the thyroid. Calcitonin's main function is to lower serum calcium levels by inhibiting osteoclast activity and renal tubular reabsorption of calcium and phosphate. The whole system works on negative feedback loops to keep calcium levels under tight control. There is a wide differential diagnosis that can be applied to a patient with hypocalcemia. You can break them down into PTH-dependent or PTH-independent causes. PTH-dependent causes are usually a failure to secrete PTH or a failure to respond to it. PTH is low or inappropriately normal. The most common cause for hypoparathyroidism is iatrogenic from either surgery or radiation. Other causes include autoimmune destruction of the parathyroid glands, infiltration into the parathyroid glands in diseases such as TB and amyloidosis, and congenital diseases such as DeGeorge syndrome or autosomal dominant hypocalcemia. 
A high phosphate level usually accompanies a low PTH. An elevated PTH can be seen in PTH resistance. PTH-independent high PTH causes include vitamin D deficiency, drugs such as calcitonin, phosphate infusions, bisphosphonates, loop diuretics, hungry bone syndrome, acute pancreatitis, rhabdomyolysis, tumor lysis syndrome, chronic kidney disease, liver disease, toxic shock syndrome, calcium malabsorption, or transfusions with citrate-containing blood products. The most common diagnoses to keep in mind follow the Hippocal mnemonic, H for hypoparathyroidism and hungry bone syndrome, I for infection, P for pancreatitis and packed red blood cells, O for overload states such as rapid blood transfusion, C for chronic kidney disease, A for absorption abnormalities, and L for loop diuretics. On history, let your differential diagnosis be your guide. Ask about recent transfusions, abdominal pain, nutrition history, kidney function, etc. Assess for signs of osteoporosis, including recent fragility fractures. Take a medication and substance use history. You should inquire about a history of neck surgery, especially thyroidectomy or parathyroidectomy. Ask about symptoms of hypocalcemia, including perioral or digital paresthesis, seizures, muscle spasms, strider, confusion, or muscle weakness. Most symptoms will develop at a corrected total calcium level of 1.9 millimoles per liter and below. On physical exam, assess vital signs and the stability of the patient. If they are unstable, follow the ABCs and call for help to start resuscitation. Patients with severe hypocalcemia can have airway compromise with strider and laryngospasm. They can also be hypotensive and bradycardic. Conduct a full neurological exam, including reflexes and assess for muscle weakness. A bedside pocus may show signs of decreased cardiac contractility. Two signs that are specific for hypocalcemia include Trousseau's and Chivostek's sign. In Trousseau's sign, a blood pressure cuff is inflated above the systolic blood pressure for three minutes and is positive if it includes carpal spasm. In Chivostek's sign, the facial muscles will twitch after the examiner taps on the ipsilateral facial nerve. The definition of hypocalcemia is a corrected serum calcium of less than 2.1 millimoles per liter. This will need to be corrected for albumin, as calcium is protein-bound. For each decrease in albumin by 1 from 40, you need to add 0.02 or 0.2 for 10 to your serum calcium level. There are four steps to the workup of hypocalcemia. The first is to confirm the diagnosis. Second is to get an ECG. Third is to investigate for the etiology. And fourth is to assess for long-term bone damage. The first step in the workup for hypocalcemia is to confirm the calcium below the lower limit of normal. Example, less than 2.1 millimoles per liter. You will need to correct the calcium for albumin or order an ionized calcium to confirm the diagnosis. An ionized calcium is superior to a corrected calcium in the setting of a critically ill patient, end-stage chronic kidney disease, hypoparathyroidism, patients receiving citrate-containing blood products, and individuals with hypercalcemia associated with malignancy. The second step is to order an ECG. A significant complication of hypocalcemia is prolonged QT syndrome which can put the patient at risk 
of torsade de points. The third step is to order investigations to determine the etiology. Specifically, a PTH level, creatinine, 25-OH vitamin D, magnesium, and phosphate are a good start. Additional investigations are guided by the patient's clinical picture. Serum PTH is the most important test when investigating hypocalcemia. Causes are broken down into PTH-dependent and PTH-independent conditions, as discussed previously. A low or inappropriately normal PTH indicates a PTH-dependent cause, such as hypoparathyroidism, and is usually associated with an elevated phosphate level. Hypomagnesemia impairs PTH release and impaired PTH receptor sensitivity resulting in hypocalcemia. If a low magnesium level is identified, consider causes such as chronic alcoholism, diarrhea, or nutritional deficiency. For other rare causes, consider an iron level, TB testing, genetic testing, or assessing for amyloidosis. An elevated PTH indicates a PTH-independent cause, which is usually associated with a low or normal phosphate level. Beware that the phosphate level can be high in the setting of chronic kidney disease. In patients with a PTH-independent cause, the vitamin D level is integral in making a diagnosis. If 25-OH vitamin D level is low, the diagnosis is vitamin D deficiency. In patients with normal levels of 25-OH vitamin D, you can order a 1-25-OH vitamin D to assess for secondary hypoparathyroidism from chronic kidney disease where the level will be low. If vitamin D is normal, consider other PTH-independent causes of hypocalcemia. For example, screen for signs of infection and monitor extended electrolytes to monitor for hungry bone syndrome. A CK will evaluate for rhabdomyolysis, which causes significant hypocalcemia by causing calcium deposition in damaged muscle. The fourth step is evaluating for long-term bone disease from chronic hypocalcemia. Imaging of bones, such as plain films, are ideally a bone mineral density test, and an ALP should be ordered for assessment. These may reveal osteomalacia, rickets, or even malignancy. If you are a resident working in acute care, having an approach to acute symptomatic hypocalcemia is important. This severe form of hypocalcemia requires prompt action to prevent complications such as cardiac arrhythmias. The diagnostic criteria includes patients with symptoms, a prolonged QT on ECG, or individuals with an ionized calcium of less than 0.8 millimoles per liter and are asymptomatic. As always, first assess the stability of your patient and ensure that they are in an appropriate setting with cardiac monitors and IV access. Use your resources and call for help if you need it. In severe hypocalcemia, IV calcium is a must, as oral calcium will not absorb quickly enough to correct the acute issue. Start with 1-2 grams of IV calcium gluconate and 50 ml of 5% dextrose D5W or normal saline and run it over 10-20 to 20 minutes. Each gram of calcium will increase the serum calcium level by 0.0278 millimoles per liter. This can be repeated until the patient is no longer symptomatic. Pro tips here, use calcium gluconate as it is less likely to cause tissue necrosis if your IV goes interstitial. As always, avoid running your calcium faster than 10 minutes as this can precipitate cardiac arrhythmias or cardiac arrest. This initial calcium dose will cover you for only two to three hours. You will need to switch to a slow infusion once complete. 
The infusion is made by mixing 11 grams of calcium gluconate in 1 liter of D5W or normal saline and running it at 50 ml per hour. The goal is to keep the calcium level at the low end of the normal range. Once you have achieved a low normal level, you can introduce oral calcium and wean off the IV infusion. Calcium levels should be monitored every 1-2 to two hours while on the infusion and then can monitor every 4-6 to six hours when discontinued until stable. For patients with mild hypocalcemia and are asymptomatic, you can start with oral supplementation of calcium. You are aiming for 1,500 to 2,000 milligrams of elemental calcium per day as either calcium carbonate or calcium citrate. For example, a 1,250 milligram tab of calcium carbonate will contain 500 milligrams of elemental calcium. You can prescribe the 1,250 milligram tablets three or four times per day with meals to reach the goal of 15,000 to 200 milligrams of elemental calcium per day. But why with meals, you ask? It turns out calcium carbonate requires gastric acid to be absorbed through the gut, so mealtime provides the best environment for this form of calcium to be absorbed. Mealtime administration is not indicated when you're treating with other formulations, such as calcium citrate. It is important to address the underlying cause of hypocalcemia. If the patient's magnesium is low, you can replace with 2 grams of IV magnesium sulfate over 20 minutes and repeat as needed until greater than 0.80. The calcium level will not normalize even with IV supplementation if the magnesium level is low. In the case of vitamin D deficiency, patients can be loaded with 300,000 units of colcicalciferol or aerocalciferol over 6 to 8 weeks, often given as 50,000 international units once weekly. In the case of PTH-dependent hypocalcemia, low or normal PTH, PTH is not sufficiently present to convert 25-OH vitamin D to 1-25-OH vitamin D, so you must start calciferol at 0.25 to 0.5 micrograms BID, in addition to 1 to 4 grams of elemental calcium per day. A systematic review studying hypocalcemia in trauma patients published in 2021 showed that 97% of these patients will experience hypocalcemia. It described that specifically in hemorrhagic shock, hypocalcemia impairs platelet function, hemiostasis, and cardiac contractility. Patients will lose calcium through blood loss, and the subsequent resuscitation with citrate-containing blood products perpetuates hypocalcemia. When blood products are given slowly, the liver can metabolize the citrate. However, during rapid transfusion, this is not always the case, and levels accumulate, leading to hypocalcemia. Why is this important? Trauma patients with hypocalcemia were found to have a higher mortality rate of 15-5%, to compared to 8.7%. So how do we manage this? The goal is to maintain a normal to high ionized calcium level during massive transfusion. The suggestion is to administer 1 to 2 grams of IV calcium chloride or 3 to 6 grams of IV calcium gluconate for every round of massive transfusion protocol, i.e. 6 units packed red blood cells. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Tetany Trouble, The Approach to Hypocalcemia. This episode was written by Dr. Samantha Brzezisi, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. Joshua Lakoff, endocrinology, and Dr. Zing Wu, general internal medicine. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and co-developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karanopoulos. 
This episode was recorded by Zara Morali and produced by Margaret Sun. Music production by Laxman's Vantha Mohan. To view an associated infographic on hypocalcemia, please visit our website, internetwork.com. Please like and subscribe at wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon.